0: Welcome to Game
1: & Cast, a podcast about dedicated, handheld retro gaming, with your host, Ryan Clater. Faithful Game & Cast listeners, welcome back. To our little cohort here, my name is Ryan Clater, and I'm glad to be sharing this little corner of your audio world with you once again, as we dive into another interview with another person making waves in the dedicated handheld retro gaming world. This episode, I'm happy to share a conversation I recently had with Luca Antignano, The main reason I wanted to have him on today is because for over 20 years he's been working to preserve the legacy of handheld and tabletop gaming by programming simulators of various games from the 80s. During this interview we'll talk about how he got started as well as recent updates to his simulators. We also dip into a few other surprise subjects like the fact that in addition to creating 60 different retro gaming simulators, he's also designed a couple of bona fide handheld LCD games that were brought to market and his website even serves as the worldwide hub of a particular gaming console that I'd never even heard of before researching his work for this interview. Probably because that console was never released in the United States, but I digress. So before I introduce Luca to death, let's welcome him to the show. Luca, can you introduce yourself? What is your name? When were you born? And where do you currently live? So my full name is Luca Antignano. Uh, I am Italian, as you can tell by, from my accent. Uh,
0: so I was born in Italy, and then I moved to, to Australia in uh, 2014. Uh, I was 40 at the time. I'm 47 now, and I still live in Sydney. I come from a beautiful place called Sardinia. So it's uh, it's really a beautiful Italian island. But unfortunately, due to uh, not many job opportunities, so I gave myself a chance to move to Australia and uh, it's been a good, uh, a good seven years. Past here. Now it's early morning here. I know that in in USA it's uh, late Friday afternoon. It's Sunday. It's Saturday morning here.
1: Yeah, so. yeah. I appreciate you navigating this time difference with me. I think you're about sixteen hours ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sixteen hours older than you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you have uh, hours of experience on me. That's good because I'm going to yeah. ask you a lot of questions <laughs> today. Um, so you're on this handheld gaming podcast and i'd like to start out with just your first experience with handheld gaming when did you first come into contact with these things
0: well if you think i'm 47 so i was a kid in the 80s i was a, let's say i was lucky enough to leave the 80s which was in my opinion the pioneering era of the video of home video gaming. and to be honest as a kid i never had a handheld game because my, my parents were really against the, the type of entertainment. So they really wanted me to be a normal kid playing with uh, Lego and other toys, which I did, of course. Um, but uh, my classmates, they had uh, handheld games, and I used to play handheld games with, uh, with them when I was uh, probably f- five, six, seven years old. So I'm talking about 1982, 1993. And I really loved them. But as I said, I never owned any. And then I found myself in my university years, when I was about 20, 21, 22, I discovered the incredible world of emulation on computer. So, and I saw an article on on an Italian, very popular magazine called The Games Machine. And it was the very first time I heard about uh, emulation. And there was a picture, so even if we talk, so I'll tell you how I got into handheld games, starting from where actually I started getting interested into playing handheld games as an adult. So in this article, there was a picture of a screenshot of Ghosts and Goblins, the arcade version. And the article showed that you could play Ghosts and Goblins on your PC, and I thought, oh, this is impossible. So I downloaded some very early emulators. It was really the pioneering era also for emulators. And the Ghosts and Goblins emulator was created by a, an Italian friend of mine, Roberto Ventura, um, he was the very first person to emulate Ghosts and Goblins on PC. And I downloaded it and I tried it, and then I started downloading other things like Pac-Man, Green Beret, and all the other games that I used to play as a kid, as a teenager in, uh, in the arcades. And among all this huge amount of, uh, uh, of arcade games and computer games, Commodore 64 emulators and so on, all the things that I wanted, there was one thing missing, which was the 100 games. So I found myself in 1999, uh, just having a, having a stroll, having a walk in a, a sort of flea market. And I found a few a bunch of handheld games for like the equivalent of a couple of dollars each. So I bought them and I took them home and, and I thought, all right, the emulator uses the ROMs, ROM images to play. So how do you take the, the ROMs out of a handheld game? Well, you can't because they were just everything in a handheld game is just into a single microchip. There is no such thing like as a ROM that you can extract with a programmer. And then I started checking on the internet why there were no emulators for this. And I found out that a couple of guys, actually a Thai guy was the very first one to create a handheld simulator on uh, on computer, which was uh, the Tamagotchi simulator. And I'm talking about 1997, that's when he did it. And so in 1999, when I first bought this bunch of handle games, I, I thought, well, if you can't emulate these small machines, you can try with the simulation, which we can talk later about. Uh, so my, my, my first experience as a game player was as a kid. And then I got more involved into, the, into this incredible world um, as an adult in 1999.
1: So you started Madrigal Simulators in 1999, and you told us a little bit about what got you started, but then how did that progress? And then 20 years later, you know, today, what's still keeping you going today and updating this?
0: Um, well, I have to admit, I'm not really doing much on the project anymore um, for a number of reasons, but what got me started was just... Uh, We can can say I'm a very curious person by nature. Uh, As I said, I grew grew up playing Lego, and that was intentional for my parents because they wanted me to be an engineer, which I am. So I really was forced into this in some way. But anyway, my mindset is that of the engineer. So I really like building and uh, creating things and uh, finding out how things work. Uh, So... To me everything is a challenge if there is any any chance for me to learn anything that becomes a challenge to me. and uh, after you learn something you want to practice something so to me it was more about okay so i know how to program so i've been doing hobby programming for i had my commodore 64 since i was uh, probably 11 and i kept programming on it until i was like 20. and then i i learned programming at university as part of my studies so i really had all the skills to to create something so to me the challenge was well let's create a video game uh, and then that's how it started and as i say because handled games were so accessible in 1999 2000 you really could buy them for a bunch of, of coins in a free market but even ebay was just starting in italy so you could find things for i don't know 10 bucks 20 bucks a rare game you can pay 20 bucks go find now uh a gaming watch on the internet if you want to buy one the most common with no battery cover no box even faulty you, you won't pay it less for 70 80 dollars or something like that so it was i was very lucky to find myself in the right time for this so i wouldn't even call myself a, a collector even if some people say are oh, you collecting video games actually i don't collect video games in fact, now I have probably one or two hundred, hundred games in my house, and that's it. But I had more than 100. The reason was because programming a hundred game is really uh, hard. It's a lengthy process. You can't do too many because it takes time. And because there are literally probably 2,000 handheld games uh, existing in the world, 2,000 types of handheld games, just think about Nintendo's mid sixty. Uh, Video technology has made another uh, 80, uh, Casio, Casio must have done 200. You can't imagine simulating them in a lifetime. So I, I had to buy a few for some money just to find to decide, okay, which one is nice enough for me to, to say, oh, I want to do this next. So this is how the, the thing started. Uh, and in the end, I simulated 60 games out of, as I said, the thousands of games existing. Um, but then, after I moved to Australia in 2014, uh, of course, my, my project has slowed down a lot. So in the, my first years of programming, I've done, I don't know, I did like 15, 20 a year or 10, 15 a year. That was a lot. I was very active. I was still uh, studying, so I had some free time. And then, of course, you, you get older, you start working, you got a wife, and uh, then you move to another country. So you get sidetracked from hobbies. Um, So since I moved to Australia, I really had to work to build a career here. And uh, so I didn't really have much time to go to games. But in 2017, I took another huge challenge for me in in my project. So I always tried to to make my simulators in a way that they were sort of um, uh, standardized in in their interface and the functionalities they had and so on. But there was always something which I really uh, missed. And because a simulator is something which is not a live product, it's a standalone executable for PC, if you design it to work on on an old monitor like uh, 1024... By 768 pixels, which was the standard resolution for monitors in uh, in early 2000. Um, then, if you want to play it on a full HD or a 4K monitor, you well, you will see just a, like a tiny, a tiny thing on your on your screen. So I thought, all right, this is the the time has come for me to design to redesign the games in a way that you can apply skins to the game. So you can really, if you like, you can create your own graphics in your place, you can design a full HD version of your game and just apply the skin to the core of the game and play it virtually on any any possible uh, screen you like. So this is what really started in 2017, to redesign all the games and upgrade them heavily with a lot of new functions, redefinable keys and other things.
1: So with the customizable skins you're talking about, are you referring to the background image behind the game itself? Everything, 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 yeah.
0: The background image, the sprites. If you want, you can even now design the game as a full screen, LCD, screen, just a full screen sprite, for example. So in my, my games, they, they have this feature compared to other similar games by other programmers. They look very realistic because I also have a lot of background as a graphic designer. Um, which I I'm self-taught person in this in this case, but I've done a lot of experience on this. So I really make my games; they really look very real. And because the 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 game itself is sort of shaped, so it, the beautiful um, Pac-Man by Tommy is like a sort of semisphere. It's a yellow semisphere. It's, a, it's beautiful. It's really a cult item that everybody would want to you know to showcase in a. Uh, in display in his own, because it really, really is a beautiful, a beautiful object. Um, that's shaped on your desktop. When you, when you launch the simulator, it will be shaped. And it looks like it is sort of sitting in the middle of your desktop with the icons around and so on. Um, if you don't like it, because the screen, of course, is tiny compared to the huge yellow hemisphere, you can design a skin with just the display and you can have the full-size display on, on your full HD screen, for example, or in the variations which I made in 2017, which, anyway, in Brexit really took me months, months and months, because there were 60, 59 games at the time, and all of them had to be redesigned, and I re- released them all together in one night. I decided to like, make a mass- massive update. Uh, uh, also, now games also have um, a proper wallpaper behind, if you like it, so they go in full screen mode with a background, which you can also change, update. If you don't like that wallpaper, you can make another one. If you don't like the Pac-Man wallpaper that I created, you can use your own wallpaper for with pac You can you can do pretty much whatever you like. Uh, so now this is this is where we're at with the, with the project. So we started. Actually, there has been there have been five different uh, evolutions of uh, of my of my games. This is the fifth standard the previous standard had another feature, the third standard had less, and so on and so on. So it was always an evolution, not just uh, creating new games, but also keeping all of them in the same uh, in the same sort of package. Mm. Uh, so th- that's a big change in 2017. And another very important thing that happened, uh, my, my games were designed to work on Windows for a number of reasons, but now they are, they are playa- playable pretty much in every possible platform. And that's thanks to the help of a Brazilian programmer, who is amazing, uh, Andrei Radella. He uh, ported all my games to a platform that's called RetroArch, that is portable to every possible system. So you can play on Android, iPhone. Uh, you can even play on the Nintendo Mini, if you want. You can play on uh, uh, the I don't know, Nintendo Switch. Xbox Xbox 360 PlayStation 4 PlayStation Portable name one and the games play there because it's a multi-emulator system that's an unbelievable it's a project similar to to mame if you if you if you know mame um, but it's multi-platform it's amazing so he ported all my games into into this, uh, into this system
1: yeah that's incredible i saw the uh, the platform list on there when i downloaded it for my pc and was pretty impressed um, you know, I, I was also wondering, where does the name Madrigal come from? Uh, what made oh, you choose God. that for your handle? Uh, you, you you will like this, because I'm pretty sure <laughs> that, you, that you are a fan
0: of uh, role-playing games. I'm sure you are. Sure. Have you ever played Dungeons & Dragons?
1: Um, not often, but I used to play a game called Dragon Warrior on NES a lot.
0: No, no, I'm, I'm talking about, the, well...
1: You're talking uh, about talking pen about
0: and the... paper RPG yes, games, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever played any?
1: Uh, not many. I've I've played a time or two, but I am not a big D and D player. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> do yourself a gift and, uh, and find find a, a bunch of guys, a bunch of friends, and, and go
1: play sometimes because it's that's amazing. It's I really missed it. I, I probably just lost my nerd cred with all the audience members, but anyway, go <laughs> ahead.
0: <laughs> now, look, the, the story is very really simple. Madrigal was just the name of my. Of my player player character I had in a, when I used to play Dungeons and Dragons with my friends at uh, university time that was it it was just a name that sounded sounded nice to me it was just a, and I had no idea what Marigold was which apparently is a, is a poem it's a type of poem I didn't know that I just liked the name I thought ah oh, that's a nice name I'll, I'll pick this one for my elf male character and that, and that was it yeah so, I, I looked
1: up the definition before talking with you here and <laughs> I was wondering. The connection. Anyway, good to know.
0: It's absolutely random. It's absolutely <laughs> random.
1: <laughs> so, you brought this up just briefly, but you outline on your website the difference between simulators and emulators. Can you talk about that a little more specifically and why the uh, Madrigal simulators are not emulators? Uh,
0: yes. So, um, the, 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 I'll tell you the definition of the two. Even if uh, an emulator itself, which we play on today, MAME, it is an emulator, but it has components of simulation. This is very technical, but it's, I'll make it very easy. Uh, when, you, when you emulate a system, when you emulate, you're not emulating a, a video game, you're emulating a system. So we talk about hardware. If you want to play an old game that you used to have on a floppy disk on your Commodore 64, and you don't have the Commodore 64 anymore, if you think about it, it's just like, you want, to, you want to speak French, but you don't know French. But you have a French book. So you need, you need to either know French, or you need somebody to translate it for you. The translator is the emulator. So with a video game, the video game was designed and written and coded and programmed and um, executed on a Commodore 64. If you put a flock in, the floppy in your PC, well, it, it won't work because the PC has a different microprocessor with a different set of language instructions. That's the language. So it, it can't understand it. So you need something that translates the code which was designed for a Commodore 64 into something which is recognizable on a PC. And that's the translator or the emulator. What you're doing by creating an emulator, you are creating a translator. And then, you, of course, add all the functionalities like joystick ports, uh, video output, keyboard, uh, floppy disk driver, and so on. Everything creates a system. But then inside of the system, if you don't have that floppy with you, well, it's just like having an empty PC without Windows installed or whatever installed. You just see the BIOS screen that says, insert a floppy tool to start up. And that's the software. So, emulator requires two things. The interpreter which is the emulator, and the game, which is the the so-called ROM or read only image. In the case of the simulator, the approach is completely different. Uh, And anyway, even MAME, which is the biggest emulator existing so so far in the world, has a component of emulation because if you really expect an emulator to recreate or translate every single flip-flop, which is like a micro-operation instead of a microprocessor, if you really want that, Probably not even NASA has a power, powerful enough computer for really recreating on a software level what the hardware does. It really is that too much, too much. You don't need all this amount of accuracy. All you need is uh, opcode translated into opcode. So opcode Commodore 64 translated into opcode Pentium, whatever. And that's enough. But this has components of simulation inside you can't you don't want to go too far. With a simulator the approach is completely different. It doesn't matter what hardware is there, it doesn't matter what software is there. all, all you do is uh, basically like uh, um, imagine you have this beautiful video game you had as a kid that you liked, but the game is lost forever. So you just recreate it based on your memory. You think oh, I was so cool. I remember you could jump here there were platforms, there were bubbles there were, Whatever, and you design the game on your computer with your skills, and you really are creating a video game. That is a simulation. That is a simulation. So you just focus on the on the game. You don't really care about what hardware, what processor, what software, nothing.
1: So essentially, what you're doing with these handheld games, because there is no ROM to access, you are recreating everything. Correct.
0: Yeah, that's correct. But the ROM is there. That's, that's the key. Uh, the ROM is there. The problem is uh, with a Commodore 64, it's easy. You have a floppy disk. You just connect it to a, uh, an old floppy disk drive from Commodore 64. You buy a cheap $10 interface that c- lets you connect the Commodore 64 floppy disk drive into USB. You have the right software on your PC. You run the software. You put your floppy disk in the, in the drive and you they say it said dump and you dump the content from the floppy disk into a readable format, which in this case is like a D64 format, which is the image of the floppy disk. It's just like a sort of CD-ROM, but instead of being physical, it's like an ISO of a CD-ROM or a DVD. Uh, you can do that very easily because you have a floppy disk, but even if you have an arcade game, so if you have a beautiful PCB of bubble bubble, which I love, well, in this case, you just with a with a solder, you just remove the apron, the ROMs, you place them on an apron programmer, and you do the same on your PC, and you have the files. Because you can really remove the chips from, from the PCB. They maybe are on sockets, so it's super easy. With Undead games, because they were so compact, so small, they had to be low energy. So they worked on tiny, tiny batteries They would last even a year they had to be super, super compact. So they were in what you would call today an embedded system. So a single microchip that has everything inside. So that microchip had the CPU and had the program inside. Everything was in a single chip. All you had from this chip were just a few things coming out of the chip. The connector for the LCD screen, of course, and a couple of connectors to a couple of buttons, left, right, time, clock, start game A, start game B, that was it. So very limited. How can you take out the program out of this chip? Now, they found a way to do it, but now the games are really emulated. MAME does it, but MAME, uh, or what you call MAME, but I'm Italian, so I call it MAME, MAME does emulate a number of games, more than 100 now, but Every time they want to add a game to MAME, what they do is they really, as far as I know, they really destroy the chip because they have to open it and find a way to read the content. Because now games are very expensive, well, nobody's really happy to destroy a uh, $500 worth of game just to extract the wrong program for it. It is happening, but it's, of course, very slow. And MAME is a, is a freeware project. It goes on by donations. So the money they get, they invest on buying some, some hardware to... Emulate. So all these years until MAME came with the with this new approach, uh, there was no other chance than playing simulators. Which is also why my project I would I wouldn't say my project is dead because it is in maintenance mode and I'm still doing things. There is a game I'm working right now, uh, which will be released very soon. Um, but it's it's something that I'm doing just for myself. Whereas in the past years, I really had a lot of pressure from people and fans constantly bombarding me with emails like, ah, can you please do this game? Can you please please do that game? Which I couldn't, because if I didn't have the the, the actual game in my hands, how can I think about making an accurate simulation just based on their description? I will describe you the game. It's very nice, but I can send you a photo of the game. I'm not sending you the game, but I will send you a photo and you start from there. Well, if I can't play the game, how can I even think about I have to measure timings, sound, I have to test the game, I have to play it as much as I can to see how it works, what happens, bugs, whatever So the approach is completely different. As I said, now you can emulate under games, but uh, uh, it's something which is really starting now.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm sort of a process junkie. I love to understand how things are made. And one of the portions of your Madrigal Simulators website that stood out to me was the section in which you essentially give a thorough tutorial outlining how anyone with some programming and graphics knowledge can create these simulated games. Um, so what inspired you to document that whole process? And have you had any feedback from people who have used it to create additional games of their own or that have been included in Madrigal Simulators?
0: Um, so, um, I really like um, I really like sharing what I know with others. For some time, I, I was also employed as a teacher, um, as I said, in my previous life in Italy. Uh, I don't know. I'm also a process junkie, just like you. And so I think it was important to document everything. In the, the first versions of my games, um, because I, I'm a self-taught person, nobody really taught me how to program, apart from just a brief university course that was just general knowledge of Pascal in that case, of a language. Um, the very first versions of my games, they were even closed source. I wouldn't even share my source code because I was so um, ashamed of the way I programmed because it was really... <laughs> Well, I I was learning myself how to do it. And uh, Mm. I wouldn't even share how to do things because I thought, well, probably somebody knows how to make it better. I don't want to to look like an idiot. But over time, I realized that actually the, the way I was doing it was really refining a lot. And I started to be a little more proud of what I was doing and to share my source codes. That's when I thought, well, maybe... It's good if I also explain the technique behind it, and also because I was getting interviews, interest, and emails, and I was really in nineteen ninety nine, two thousand one. My website was really popular, um, so I thought, okay, I can't do everything on my own. I can't really code hundreds of games just on my own. Let's teach others how to do it, and you know, so they can they can get started. Um, I don't know if. Well, there there have been a few programmers that contacted me, asking me for assistance for help and uh, um, to get them started how to start. Keep in mind, my tutorial is a a very old one. I think it dates 2001, I think. So And it teaches just the basics or just a little bit of the process. But it's not an in-depth tutorial. Uh, I did something much better. Uh, Unfortunately, it's just in Italian for an Italian magazine around 2004 or 5, I think. Um, and that really ended up in being an article published on a Real Video Game magazine. That was much, much um, more detailed. Uh, it's not available in English anyway.
1: Have you archived that on your website? I know you've got a link to a few different yeah. publications that you've been featured in. Yeah, it's there. It's, there. Okay. it's also been
0: re- republished. But again, it is just... Part one, because then the magazine closed down after a few issues. They probably issued four or five uh, magazines, and then, I don't know, they, they didn't go ahead. But the first part is that, yet yeah, on my website, there is a, a page called um, Press Review, and they, there are all my publications and my articles. And everything is there. You can download and, and see everything.
1: Do you have any plans to write or release part two of that article?
0: <sighs> Not really. <laughs> No, because, no, the the thing is, since I moved here, I started to, of course, I improved my English since I moved to Australia, which has always been quite good. But now, of course, uh, it's getting better. So now I dare writing in English more than I used to do. So maybe I can take the challenge, but again, I would need somebody to help me with uh, you know, refining the translation. If I'm publishing something, it needs to be perfect. I've done some publications recently. For example, I published um, uh, a sort of booklet about retro games uh, that was originally made in Italian in 2015, and then I translated it into English, and it's on sale now. Um, but it took me some time, and I had to involve uh, English native speaker friend to help for help. And I, I don't want to, you know, uh, if it's something that I'm doing for free, I can't pay people for, you know, for a professional translation. That's going to be a massive cost for me. So, and it also need, needs to be worth it. And at this stage, if I had time to devote to my hobby, I would probably prefer creating new games rather than writing a second section of a massive article on a technique that if you think about MAME, well, my technique is superseded because now with MAME you can emulate games. Mm-hmm. So there is really n- no point. It's still, it's still something which is worth talking about because this has been the only way to play Game & Watch for 20 years pretty much. So it's still something which is really in the in the history of uh, uh, emulators. Uh, there is something which I'm, I'm quite proud of. So the founder of MAME, uh, Nicola Salmoria, he's an Italian genius. He really is a genius. Nicola has uh, got his uh, degree in mathematics, I think, about 10 years ago. And he mentioned my project inside of his uh, thesis. Mm. So he wrote a thesis on uh, MAME and uh, the approach to emulation. He mentioned my technique as uh, an opposed technique. And so my name ended up in his uh, university thesis, which is a masterpiece. Mm. That's something which is I think it's it's quite cool. Mm. There was something I wanted to tell you about what's happening now. Yes, I've been approached, as I said, by a number of programmers. And very recently, an uh, um, Israeli guy has uh, contacted me and he said, um, I would like you to, to simulate this particular game. And I said, look, I'm not doing it anymore. I don't have the game, I can't. And he said, well, I would like to do it. And I helped him a lot. So in the game, in the end, what I did, I gave him one of my source codes and I said, the game you want to em- sim- to simulate is very similar to this. So start from this source code of mine, and you will find out that the games are pretty much, very much alike. So the game we're talking about is Popeye by Nintendo. It's a game of Watch Classic. And the game is really similar to Parachute, which, well, it happened that I simulated it many years ago. So I gave him my source code of Parachute, and he learned to program Pascal because the source code is written in Turbo Pascal or Delphi, which is the visual Pascal for Windows and he learned how to program with, uh, with Delphi. He studied my source code, and then he started making the changes to make the game into Popeye. And of course, I helped him, but it's fantastic because his background and his job, he's a sort of system analyst. He's a programmer himself. So he uses, he uses his skills on MATLAB and Python to create a script to analyze video recordings of actual play of the game, which he plays on emulated Popeye, on MAME. So he played the game on MAME, he recorded on video, he created a spreadsheet with a script of his analyzing the behavior of the game, and everything ended up into into MATLAB. So that's unbelievable if you think about it. So he has found out how the game works just by observing the game to to a higher level. And based on this, he said, okay, so these are actually the the constraints of the game. We have this maximum amount of enemies on screen at the same time. This is how the speed increases. And he created the formulas for this, which I have always done in my way, not using fancy stuff like MATLAB and Python scripts. Uh, Maybe I played the, the game 50 times. He just played it three times, and he got into the same result. (laughs) <laughs> so we, we, we recreated this game, and of course, the game will have a new standard because he wanted to have his own things in the game. So now we are releasing, for the first time, my, my website will host a game that done by somebody else. The game will have two skins in it for the first time. One will be a full HD skin, and the other one will be a small skin. And you can pick up which skin you want when you start the game. Uh, and we'll also have a pause option, so you can pause the game when you're playing, which is something that I never really wanted to do, but this time I did it for him. It took me an hour. I coded it yesterday in one hour. I coded all the functions to pause the game and reprise the game whatever you want. It just took me an hour, but I never really wanted to do it in my past. So the game is going to be released probably in a couple of weeks because now it's really 99.9
1: finished. Nice. Yeah, I saw that announcement on your Facebook page, either today or yesterday. Yeah. I can't remember which, but yeah, that that's exciting. Yeah, you has got it. some new content coming out. No, um,
0: look, it's, it's really cool because he, uh, Kobe, he, that's his name, he really is a very nice uh, guy. He really loves to learn, just like me. He's an engineer, just like me. So he really has fun in this, and he's doing it just just to, Of course, he doesn't need it because he can play Popeye Game Watch on his main. But he really wants to challenge himself, which is exactly my same approach. So, so he wanted to do something for himself, something for his kids or whatever. And he wanted to, I don't know, to just have fun. And this is a, this is what, what, what I like. This is why I, I never really wanted to make my games a commercial product. It has to be a freeware project. It's always been a freeware project. Uh, I don't mind making money out of it. I make money out of my job, which is fine. I don't need money. I ended up doing professional programming for... So, so I, actually, a few years ago, I really did design, handled games that ended up being sold on the market. Hmm. They were commissioned by Micro Games of America. Uh, but that was a real uh, commission that I got from them. So it was a, a contracted job. Uh, they contacted me, I designed the game, the game went under production, they went on the shelves, they were sold, and that was it. But there, that's a different story, and you kind of download the simulators of those games. Of course, I didn't do it because I sold those products. Uh, But I really want my project, and this is one of my projects. I I had many projects in the past, and I still have a few, and all of them are strictly freeware.
1: So can you talk about that a little bit more? You said that you produced an original game for Microgames of America. What title was Um, it? So
0: it's a funny story because one of my, let's call them fans, so I look like a, like a celebrity I'm a bit of a celebrity no, I'm kidding I'm kidding but actually no there was a there was a guy who was who really, who enjoyed my simulators very much uh, so in 2007 this guy actually he was uh, a production manager for 3do before he worked at Atari he worked at Nintendo and then he ended up working at microgames in America we are good friends he's an American guy um, um, and he contacted me to say, would, would you like doing some design for us? And uh, at that time, Microgames of America was uh, building relationships with a few uh, a few video games manufacturers. So they weren't just doing dolls or electronic dolls or something. They were entering t- into the market of uh, handled games. But we're talking about cheap stuff. Uh, because in 2007, who is going to buy a handled pocket game when you can buy a Game Boy Advance, honestly. But it's the type of toy that you always see in in the supermarkets. You go to, what's the American supermarket called? Uh, Something, Mart? Kmart? Yeah, yeah. you go to Kmart and you will will find this bunch of games for like $5, $10 and so on. Massive production, they make millions of these games and it would be just... The thing you buy to your kid to say, okay, shut up. Okay, I'll, go, I'll buy you a game so <laughs> you can shut up for 10 minutes. So they really did. and But the thing is they were doing good agreements with uh, Namco. So I designed four games for them, four. Two of which went under production. And one is uh, Galaxian. So it's a pocket game of Galaxian. And the other one is uh, actually it's uh, like a Columns game, Columns by Sega. It's a sort of Tetris. Um, the the game is the same but the, the theme is different it's that of the Bratz dolls have you ever heard of the Bratz? Yeah? yes yeah, uh-huh. yeah. so that game is a, it's a pink game actually the plastic is pink it's very girly, it's, it's cute uh, and it's a, it's a clone of columns the other two games I designed they never went under production but one was Pac-Man one was a pocket version of Pac-Man uh, and the other one was uh, a sort of Atomica which is a puzzle game um so all they, of these were they, they made two and they sold and they sent me just a couple of uh, of, of samples just for me to, to keep
1: so uh, these were all LCD games right yes okay absolutely
0: cool. same, same technique just in this case I had to also design the, the gameplay I designed the in screen as well so at some point I got into contact with the, their design team in relation to the graphics and there is also something very 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 Interesting. When I designed the graphics, I wasn't really really given many specifications. That's, that's interesting. They told me, we are going to use this particular CPU for this game because we, it is very cheap. We, we can buy a stock of these CPUs in particular. The limitation is they can manage up to, let's say, 256 LCD segments on a screen. So you have to design your game so that it doesn't exceed 256 segments. Because if you if that's not enough for you to design that game, then we need to use a different microprocessor, which is more expensive for us. So I really had to design and count how many LCD elements were there, uh, and I did it. The second game, I think it went up to 320, because I said, with a game like Columns, I need a lot of sprites, because it's a matrix of things falling from the top, and I need hundreds of them. Um, So I think with that, it went up to the higher model. The funny thing would happen with Namco is they just told me the number of sprites, but they don't didn't tell me that they wanted me to design the screen. So I just designed a couple of random aliens that I liked, a random uh, starship, and I sent the sa- the the sample for for approval. And they came back to me and they said, "Well, this doesn't look anything like Galaxian." And I said, "Well, guys, you didn't tell me what do you want from me." Well, we wanted you to do the graphics just like it was Galaxian. Well, easy. And I did it probably in a couple of hours because it was just, you know, very, very easy monochrome sprites. The funny thing is the sample that they sent me has an overlay uh, on the game that still has my old graphics. I don't know how they did it, but the game has the old graphics. What is friends of mine who really bought the game because they wanted to have the game that i designed they have the new graphics overlaid on uh, on the screen which is very funny i thought well they really sent me a sample a pre-production sample which must be something like unique so it's it was it was very 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 cool very i don't know this is the type of things that make me very very curious
1: yeah that's really neat um jumping back real quick to your simulators uh, are there any concerns for the platform on which you've created these simulators? Like, is there any risk of the software they're written on becoming outdated or obsolete? Like, do you have any plans to future proof them? Or is that not even a concern? Um,
0: well, the software, my games, uh, well, the programming language is Delphi and I use a very old version of Delphi, but Delphi is, uh, is still alive. Uh, they use it a lot in uh, professional programming. I used to work as a programmer in a bank. They still use Delphi, for example. It's not, of course, it's not as popular as Python, Java, and uh, C and C plus plus, and so on. But Delphi is still alive, um, and uh, they keep releasing new versions in different forms. And to be honest you can convert a DeFi script, which is Pascal, basically. You, you can convert it easily in C with a, with a script. You can make a script to convert one language to another language, and that makes the game virtually, you know, um, uh, you could live forever. Like Immortal, once you convert the, the source from Pascal to C, well, you can compile C everywhere you want, even on your dishwasher. <laughs> um, the, the thing that concerns me is the not not much the language but the platform because from that point of view I am, my games are not fully programmed in uh, so the game of course is programmed in Pascal but they make massive use of objects it's called object Pascal so the components my game um, my games are based on they are visual this this is how, you program applications nowadays, you you base your programming on libraries which are pre-existing, and they are typically embedded in the software that you are using. So in my case, I didn't have to really reinvent the wheel to make the game, I just had had so much background um, environment with me, I didn't need to create the type for uh, an image to switch off or switch on, that would be the LCD segment. The the image of Mario, you just switch it on and off. The properties it has, how to read the pixels, and so on. That's all included in the Delphi. You don't have to worry about buttons, combo boxes, uh, menus, uh, exit button, or anything. Everything is there, so you can just focus on the fun part of of the design, which is, let's do some programming. I don't need to spend, like, 10 days to create a library for it. The library is there. This is the risk, but this is valid for everything. Even if even when today Nintendo releases new revamped versions of uh, their own products from 20, day, 20 years ago, they can't just take the source code and recompile it. Sometimes they rely on emulators. A very, very famous case was the case of uh, Zelda 64 Ocarina of Time when it was ported from Nintendo 64 to GameCube because at some point you could buy Zelda 64 on the GameCube it run on emulator. So on that GameCube disk that you would buy, there was an emulator of Nintendo 64 and the ROM of Zelda Ocarina of Time inside. So even if my games are updated, there will always be a Windows emulator on the next-generation computers that will allow you to play all the retro things. Everything is, is emulated now. Think about SCAM VM. That, that you can play your old Maniac Mansion, uh, with revamped graphics and everything easily, even if it was an MS-DOS game from 1992, you can play it. So I'm really not worried about that. The thing that, I, that I'm that i worried about is more about the number of platforms. But this is sort of sorted because with RetroArch, my sources were converted from Pascal to Eliway, Lua, which is a sort of a new language. which it is, it is quite similar to, it's a hybrid between BASIC and, and Pascal, which is becoming very popular, especially for cross-porting. So once the game is translated into LUA, uh, there is no, no problem. It can be compiled everywhere.
1: Okay. Um, so I know you said that the Madrigal Simulator project is a, a little off your radar these days, but I'm curious if you can just uh, talk about what you might have planned for the future of Madrigal Simulators, both immediate and long-term, if you've thought of that.
0: Because this is a hobby, it is just run by passion. and. Passion comes and goes. So at some point in my life, I may be passionate about photography, which I am in this time, or more about you know going outdoors. And well, I moved to another country, so I want to explore this country. So my focus now is well, I'm building a life here. I want to see what this beautiful country has to offer. So I wouldn't I wouldn't see myself spending too much time on my computer doing programming because it requires a lot of focus. You really have to be hyper focused to the programming. So there is no such thing that a couple's life requires like uh, uh, dinner time, breakfast time and so on. So time can't be a constraint when I'm programming. So this is that's why since I moved to Australia I really slow down a lot. So I can do the small things like I can update my website. I can help others doing the things which doesn't require too much of my time and I don't need to stay four hours continuously. So The project is still there. As I said, in the past three, four weeks, I really worked very much with uh, this Israeli programmer. It was worth it. It really was worth it. Um, I'm not sure if if this happens again, if Kobe wants to do more games, I'm very happy to work with him Uh, because at least we can share the load a little bit and have fun, both the two of us, and have a person to talk to, which is for the first time I'm really having a partner in this project because I always did everything on my own. If this happens, I'm very happy to. Uh, I have, as I said, a couple of games which I didn't uh, sell or didn't get rid of because usually all my hundreds of games I had, I then sold them at some point because I thought, you know what, I simulated this, I don't need the game anymore. I'm going to sell it and maybe with the money I can buy another one. And in the end, I just kept two, one of which is Mario's Cement Factory by Nintendo, which is a game that I absolutely adore. And I've done the graphics. I started doing the programming a few years ago and I never finished it so maybe I can finish it. Um, so that's one of the things that I have in my in my pipeline, but it's, a, it's at my own pace. Um, so with magical simulators, it is, a, it is a sort of maintenance, and if there is any bug report that I receive, and somebody say, "Ah, oh, look, you know, simulation could be made more accurate by this, this, and that, yeah, it's easy. Maybe I spend a couple of hours, I can fix the problem, or I can make some improvement, but something like the massive update I did in 2017 from standard four to standard five, adding the multi screen system, blah, blah blah blah. I'm not doing it anymore. It took it took me months, so I I don't have the time anymore.
1: Now I know you also have a heavy interest in the Creative Vision console, and again, your yeah. website is a wealth of information with great documentation. But can you first tell the listeners about? The Creative Vision, because it was never released in the United States. And so uh, I'm interested in that and also what you're doing with the creative uh, emulation or Creative Emu project. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. So again, the way my interest into Creative Vision started is just the same thing as for the simulators. So in 2001, when I had collected enough emulators of pretty much everything, I also made was making my own simulators of handled games, there was one console which was popular in Italy, or at least not popular, but it was known in Italy because as a kid I used to read magazines and there were always commercial and advertisement of this uh, Creative Vision console, but I had not a single friend who had it, so I never had a chance to really play it. As a kid I had friends having uh, mostly the Commodore 64 and VIC-20. Somebody had like uh, Odyssey, Nobody had like a Creative Vision, but then it happened again by chance. I spoke to a friend of mine and said, "Ah, these emulators are amazing. I'm just too, so much into it. I'm playing games and blah blah." blah. But there's a console that I, I really can't find an emulator. It's called the Creative Vision. And he said, "Well, I have one. Hmm. My dad used to work in the in the company that um, distributed Creative Visions in Italy. That was uh, actually a company that sells white goods like dishwashers and, uh, and fridges, but they." Entered the video games market basically when there was the big crash of video games in 1984. So they came too late, and I had the privilege to interview the person who was responsible for this. He was the marketing manager at the time. So my project, Creative Emu, started in 2001. Firstly, you know, because I was trying to put together a team so that we can have an emulator for it. And then I started, of course, buying cartridges to dump. So I did the dumps myself with an EPROM programmer. Uh, removing the chips from the, the sockets and so on. So I really got it started, and it was originally an Italian project. It was just four Italian guys. Myself, Roberto Ventura, which I mentioned before, he was the first to emulate Ghost and Goblins in 1996. He was a, uh, he's an amazing programmer, and he just emulated the Vision in literally two days. Two days of programming, and it was it was ready. Uh, and I started documenting it. So and I found out how difficult it was to find. just the games, information on the the, the system, because as you said, it never sold in America. And after twenty years of research, from nineteen ninety, from two thousand one to today, my website is literally is the central point on the internet for this system. Uh, There is everything you may ask for. So there are dozens of articles scanned from websites all over the world. The console sold very well in Australia, because the local uh, Kmart, which is called Dick Smith uh, Electronics at the time, now it's defunct. Mr. Dick Smith is still, uh, is a millionaire, he's alive, he's a a very nice guy, Um, very popular here. Um, He sold this computer only in his supermarket. So it was very popular in Australia. It was sort of popular in uh, Italy, it was popular in Germany, Austria, it's sold in Israel, it's sold in random countries like South Africa, like uh, Sweden, not in, not in the USA. Um, of course, it's sold in Hong Kong because it is designed in Hong Kong. The manufacturer of Creative Vision is Video Technology, who nowadays, nowadays makes toys for kids, but also sells and does a lot of, a lot of stuff. It is what back in the, in the days they had their own version of the Game & Watch, they were called Time and Fun Pocket Games very popular. they sold in America through innovator electronics. they sold everywhere in the world. I used to play them as a kid. they sold in Italy as well. Uh, so video technology designed this beautiful thing which I can tell you after all these years of research I found out some backstory which is incredible. the, the console was designed for Coleco. It was designed for Coleco. Coleco before selling his Coleco vision, they engaged a few companies in uh, Eastern Asia to come with, uh, with designs of what they wanted to produce, which is uh, what happened. So a Korean company designed the, the, the Creative Vision. The project was then sold to Coleco, but for some reason it wasn't approved and they went for an, with another company, which I don't know exactly what company it was because I know the story from the Creative Vision side. And they decided to by a similar product, which is the ColecoVision. ColecoVision and Vision. they they came from the same um, technical specifications, if you want want to call them this way. It is not uh, a case. It's not like a um, casual that the two computers or consoles have the same video processor, the same audio processors, the same amount of RAM, the same everything only the CPU is different. The Creative Vision is exactly like a ColecoVision, but it runs on a 6502 processor, and the ColecoVision r- runs on a Z80 processor. Everything else is exactly the same, um, which makes the two systems, of course, completely incompatible, because when the CPU is different, there is nothing to do. You have to, re- to reprogram the game if you want to port it. So this is how Creative Vision was born. And then the project was bought by video technology. And they struggled to find an American importer. But I have proofs. I have catalogs. um, There is actually, there are a bunch of um, NTSC creative visions made for the US market. But they were made so that they can, uh, they could showcase the creative vision at the CES, which they did because they were trying to find some, importers some distributor in america they did find in italy they did find in, in australia they did find uh, distributors in uh, many countries of the world but the usa but anyway there is documentation on my website that proves that creative vision was uh, there was even a catalog for, for the american market but it really never sold
1: so this console was essentially built for people who are interested in programming, am I correct? Because it came with yes. a functional keyboard and a cassette yeah. deck that, you know, attached onto the side of it, and yeah. like it was built so that you could program it, right?
0: Yes. Well, it, it really is like a ColecoVision. The thing with the ColecoVision, what they did, Coleco just wanted a video game. So what they did, you can really put the two controllers in the pocket of the console, right? two controllers, you put them in the pocket side by side, and they are two joysticks with uh, keypads num- with numbers from 1 to one to 0, right? You have 10, ten keys on each Vision controller. Well, what they did with, with Creative Vision was to turn the two controllers, not side by side, but one against the other, in the shape of a, of a keyboard, and they put more keys. So you really have the two joysticks with half a keyboard each, so each joystick has like uh, 20 Ks instead of 10, like the Coleco Vision, and you put them together, and that's a keyboard. You can then detach them and replace them with a professional in brackets with a rubber keyboard, and then you can attach your joysticks. And then the, the good thing is with the, with the Creative Vision, you can remove the two side panels, to the left and to the right, and you can add. On one side, you can add RAM expansion, a printer port or a floppy disk port, and you can add another RAM extension. And then on the other side, you can add your cassette player. And then you buy your basic interpreter on cartridge, you plug it in, you switch it on, and you have a full computer, which is like one and a half meter long, because you start putting things on the left on the right, and it becomes (laughs) one and a half meter. It's crazy, but it's so fun. And you have this uh, computer, which is the basic is so crap. Nobody would, would would be happy to program on that basis because it's it's so slow. It's just the worst thing, especially if you don't buy the, the rubber keyboard. Typing on the, on the joysticks of the Creative Vision is just a nightmare. But imagine for a kid in the 83, he could say, "Hey, I have a video game. And you can even program on it. That's so cool!" And it really is very cool. Um, not many games were released for the Creative Vision, unfortunately, because they were all designed in house. They were trying to save on costs. They were still trying to find the distributors. If I tell you how many units they, they produced, you would laugh. They made probably 150,000. 150,000 for a video game console is nothing. Nothing. They probably made more Game & Watch games, more than, uh, more than Creative Visions. If you think about Atari 2006, 2600 sold, I don't know, 20 million, 50 million. And the Creative Vision, that really had very cool games because the quality of the game is just like the Creative Vision. That was the dream for the kids in the 80s. Everybody wanted the Creative Vision because Donkey Kong was just like the one in the arcades. And every game on the Creative Vision is just amazing. Uh, so the Creative Vision was the same quality. Uh, but the games, the, the, there is a Pac-Man for Creative Vision, but you can't call it Pac-Man they had a Pac-1, they had it retired from Namco for legal issues, so they had to make changes, change the game. That's very funny, because instead of having Pac-1 that is eating the dots, you have a chicken that is laying eggs in a labyrinth, and you you finish, you complete your level when the, the labyrinth is full of eggs. Mm-hmm. So they had to reverse everything, because Namco had first them changed the name and then the design, and there was a legal action. Again, this is an article that I have on my website. They speak about this
1: legal action from Namco. I think they turned that game into a VFD game and an LCD game as well, didn't they? Exactly, which I simulated as well. Yes,
0: Hmm. it's called Chicky Chicky Woggy. -woggy. yeah, yeah. They did. They did exactly the same. You have foxes hunting Mm -hmm. for the for the chicken. Yeah. So you don't you don't have ghosts and you lay you lay eggs. That's very funny. Um, Well, the
1: uh, yeah, because
0: it's because it's the same company.
1: The Creative Vision project you're doing sounds amazing and in-depth and I'm sure we could have an entire podcast on it alone but (laughs) I want to be wary of your time and also this episode length so um, just to sort of take us out here I had a couple last questions so you mentioned that you have a couple of handheld games left one is Mario Cement Factory which you're thinking about simulating, and another one, which you did not mention. So I'm curious if you have any type of gaming Uh, collection beyond the handhelds, what might be the second handheld you have and beyond the creative vision?
0: uh, As I said, I I don't consider myself a collector. So the two games I still have, uh, the other one is a Casio game, which is called uh, Circus Kong. And the reason why it's a solar-powered game, the reason why I have it, I didn't want to sell it, is that I used to play it as a kid a lot because my, one of my classmates had it, and I loved it. Uh, and I just thought, well, this game is worth nothing. So there is not even point for me selling it because it really is, you know, it doesn't have any box, doesn't have anything. And I still want to play it every now and then. I, I never do it, but that's the one game that I thought, when I finish Mario 7 Factory, this is the one game that I used, that I used to play as a kid, if I'm doing one more game, I'm going to do this one because it, that's probably the first game I ever played, I think. I don't remember, but it probably was. And In relation to the Creative Vision, uh, I had the biggest collection in the world, actually, with Creative Vision. If you think about 20 years just focused on buying stuff for Creative Vision just for the sake of documenting it, I ended up really having a lot of stuff a lot. And when I moved to Australia and I realized I can't take all this stuff here, <laughs> I started selling. No, really, it, it, it's sad, but I had I had to sell it. I had like 15 models of consoles, all boxes. They just, they just, I had a cupboard just with the consoles. And then I had another cupboard with peripherals and a lot of paper, books, uh, articles, magazines. I had so much stuff. I thought, I'm going to sell it because there is no point for me keeping it. And I spread it to because I am the central point of the creative vision community because I run the forum. I, run the, I know 99% of the collectors in the world. So I, I know what they needed. So they came to me and said, Luca, do you still have this one for me? I said, yeah. So I really was very happy to spread it as much as I could to as many friends as I could. And I still have some stuff which I'm still selling. But as I said, because I made most of my friends happy with what I wanted, the things that they didn't want, I still have them. If I really wanted to massive sale everything, I would just put everything on eBay, which is not happening. So I still have this stuff, just in case somebody asks me, oh, look, I would like this one or, this, or that one. And if not, I'm, I'll put something on eBay at some point. So this is why I, I, don't, I don't say I have any collection at the moment. I just have these 200 games here in Sydney because if I decide to program, I need them here. Mm-hmm. And my, what the remains of my collection of television is just in Italy, at my parents place.
1: Okay. And last question I had for you was outside of these simulation and emulation projects, what occupies your time? Uh, I'd be curious to hear what you do occupationally and recreationally beyond these passion projects of yours.
0: Um, well, Let's say that having moved to another country, I had to pack all my hobbies in one small thing, which is my laptop. So most of my hobbies are on my laptop. I I, I love going out for photography, which is something I discovered just a few years ago. Uh, I'm not a professional photographer, but I have a a decent camera, so I like taking pictures of of what I see. So it could be Sydney Street photography or travel and so on. And then I do some post-processing on my laptop. So everything goes back into my laptop. Um, So at the moment, what occupies me is... um, Mostly my job, so I'm, um, by trade, I'm an architectural engineer, which is a hybrid between an architect and an engineer. So it's more like an engineer focused on buildings. What I do as a job here is uh, called diagnostic and remedial engineer. And I can mention just one case. Imagine like the big fires in the high-rise towers that happened a few years ago in London. That started a spark here. And as part of my job, I inspect buildings to make sure that there is no combustible stuff, for example. I do this by up most of the time. So I up down the buildings with ropes and stuff. Mm. We took pictures, we took samples, we have them tested in the laboratory, and then we write report. and then we write the project, how to replace this stuff with new materials, how can you do this. This is just one type, or it can be waterproofing. Oh, I have a leak in my shower. What's happening here? And then you do the investigation. You go with the equipment. You do water testing, uh, moisture testing, and so it is a a job that keeps me 50% of my time outside of my office, which I like, and 50% of my time in the office writing reports. It's a very dynamic, and uh, and if you think it's not something that you can study, it's something that you learn on the go. So you learn every day, which is again the thing that drives me. So I'm really driven by learning. And uh, to me, a job like this is really, to me, it's like the best job in the world, in my opinion. So when I'm so satisfied of my job, yeah, I do have some spare time. Um, I can hang out with, with my friends or I can go out with photography or I can cook with my girlfriend or something like that. Um, this is how I, I use my time.
1: Well, Luca, thank you so much for taking your time with us today and for preserving these games i mean for many years you were the source for these handheld simulators and i really appreciate you coming on the show and chatting with us about it today
0: look it was a real pleasure for me to to meet you uh, and and to have this chat you um, i look look forward to hearing anything from from your podcast or anything you're doing so thank you so much for for this opportunity and your time
1: you got it it. thank you All right, and there you have it. Luca, man, you've amassed such an incredible body of work in the retro handheld gaming community. And I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk and share this conversation and some of your accomplishments with our listeners. I have a feeling you'll be hearing similar sentiments as folks start to download this episode. And speaking of this episode, Luca and I originally recorded this interview on February 12th, 2021, and this episode's release date was on April 12th, 2021. If you want to know about any of the websites, resources, or simulators mentioned during this episode, you can head over to our show notes at www.gameandcast.com. That's www.gameandcast.com. And not only will you see a list of those links, but I've also asked Luca if he would share some of his photography with us, as well as a picture of him with the Casio Circus Kong he mentioned, an LCD handheld game from his childhood. And if you've been enjoying these episodes, tell a friend. It's real easy. You know our website, GameAndCast.com, or look for the GameCast podcast on any podcatching service. My name is Ryan Clater, and if I've not offended you too horribly, I presume I'll see you back here in a couple weeks for our fourth episode. Until then, if you have any comments, questions, or thoughts, you can contact me at the show's email address, ryan at GameAndCast.com. That's R-Y-A-N at GameAndCast.com. All right, let's close this out, everyone, by being safe, masking up, and gaming on.